0: In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. Twenty years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Oh,
1: mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy.
0: Not now. Not ever. I mean, (laughs) these comments are
1: completely inappropriate.
0: I'm sure she's right.
1: But I ain't spending any time on it.
0: How pathetic. You're a classic space invader.
1: Disgusting, mud sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves.
0: Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy. Very good. (laughs) Welcome to Democracy Sausage Extra. I'm Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute, and this podcast comes out twice weekly from the good officers of PolicyForum.net at the Crawford School of Public Policy. And I'm quite chuffed this week to bring you a discussion with my esteemed academic colleague, Professor Keith Dowding. Keith is in fact Distinguished Professor of Political Science and Political Philosophy at the ANU's School of Politics and International Relations a school with which I'm also connected. And he's written a very timely book with the catchy title, It's the Government, Stupid, How Governments Blame Citizens for Their Own Policies. It's from Bristol University Press. Now, Keith Dowden, congratulations on the book and doubly so on its title. I can't help but notice it not only overturns the much more commonly used uh, axiom of political campaigning, It's the Economy, Stupid, but perhaps more substantially, it flies in the face of the neoliberal principle of personal responsibility. It's really sh- sort of switching it around and saying there's a lot of responsibility that goes onto governments. That's more more than you know governments care to admit. That seems to be the sort of key argument that you're putting here.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. So one of the general arguments is that uh, you know people need to be responsible for the choices they make, and there's been a, a push from what we might call neoliberalism that um, the nanny state has done too much for people and people need to take responsibility. But it's true that individuals are responsible for the choices they make from the menu of opportunities they have. But in fact, it's society which creates those opportunities and the government's the biggest actor in that in, in society. And so really, the government needs to take responsibility for the, the menu of choices that people face. That's the argument of the book. So one of the arguments is that there are two sides to responsibility, individual choice, and we can look at that. And then there's the sort of choices that people have and government that uh, needs to, to, through its regulatory policies and its legal obligations, uh, sets those, uh, uh, sets those, uh, that menu.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. We'll come to this idea of the menu and, and, and sort of how those range of responsibilities or possibilities are framed. Um, but let, let's, let's sort of go to the elephant in the room here, which is that, um, you can already hear, imagine people going, hang on, hang on, hang on, you know, um, If people gamble too much, or they smoke, or they, you know, don't don't won't won't turn up to work and can't hold down a job because they're they're lazy or whatever it is, or they're fat or whatever it is that uh, you know sort of frames their life experience, that's their choice. It's not down to governments to do that and the nanny state, you know, which is the sort of, you know, the, the, the pejorative version of, of government, I guess, that we here referred to and we've had that said so much over over decades now. Um, that's, you know, it's, the answer doesn't lie with that. The answer lies with the individual. Well, you
1: have to sort of recall is that we can, if we can take two people in the book, I have a little story about, uh, uh two men. I can't remember their names like actually. I can tell you, George, names. Yeah. Dennis and James. Demi- Dennis and James, who, um, have made different choices, you know, at school and, and one of them goes on and gets married and has a good, goes to university. Has well, a let, good let's life just,
0: and- let's just slow down there for a second okay. because I actually really like Dennis and James. When yep. I went, I, I started reading this section of the book and I thought, you know, this is, this is really quite fascinating because, um, and, and, and add in, add in here wherever I go wrong, but essentially they're both at the same school and they're both pretty bright. You know, they're bright yep. enough, right? They're, they're, they're good students or they're, 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 you know, they've got the makings of good students. But one of them, let's say it's Dennis, and I think it is Dennis in the way you described it. Um, plays up a bit more and sort of starts going down that path, doesn't do his homework, you know, is less interested in school, mucks around, get, falls in with some other guys, you know, that sort of reinforces bad behaviour. And so you have this kind of splitting apart of these two, two people and a whole lot of different sort of subsequent decisions then effectively reinforce that different direction that they take so that Dennis ends up... Um, not doing as well at school because it doesn't mean as much to him, he ends up experimenting with substances whereas James doesn't um, and he ends up not having a good qualification out of school, therefore not going to university, not having a trade, not having a, you know a qualification. Uh, this leads to his sort of precariousness in the labour market, blah, blah, blah. And on the other side you've got James who's taken sort of more responsible decisions. So what are you trying to say there? I mean that's essentially it, isn't it? And you're trying to – using that model to explain that there's choices there but there are also – Yeah, I mean the the point is that that's what people ordinarily
1: think when they look at two people and it's perfectly legitimate to say, well, if two people have come from very similar backgrounds, they've made different choices – different times in their lives and we can say relative to what, to what to you know relative to Dennis and James that yeah one of them's had a better life and the other one hasn't and and uh, uh, Dennis can, can blame himself James can feel happy and, and and so on but when we think about for example i use that as an example of homelessness or, um That, well, that's all very well looking at those two characters. But if you look at the amount of homelessness there are, there is today in 2020 and the amount of homelessness there was in say 1980, this story is irrelevant. Unless you're going to say that for some reason individuals have become more irresponsible and that's why there's more drug addiction or there's more homelessness. What's changed between 1980, what's more plausible between 1980 and, and today, is government regulation and what government spends its money on, what sort of housing it provides, is its fiscal policies. So, it's though, you need to sort of think about the type of comparisons that you're making. Similarly with obesity, we might think, well, some people eat a lot more and eat less well than others, um, and that's why, you know, the, the, they're larger, they're, more, they're obese and other people aren't, but, What's happened in the last 40 years is there's been an obesity crisis with a massive increase in the number of uh, people that are overweight and dangerously overweight. And I say, well, what's changed is in fact the way in which we manufacture food and the sort of foods that people eat. And and I don't blame manufacturers for this. I say it's government regulation which is the problem. Mm. So I think you've got to look at the right sort of – the right sort of comparisons. So I think the idea that either it's individual responsibility or it's government responsibility is wrong, we can think about individual responsibility in a comparative sense, Dennis and James, or we can think about government responsibility for the changing structures, the changing uh, nature of obesity or homelessness or crime or something over time.
0: Yeah, right. So it's, it's like um, there are a number of different ways we can look at this and that micro Example is it seems to be cut and dry, but it doesn't give you the whole picture. There's a sort of a macro analysis we need to look at as well. I might That's just right. read this little section of this book because I think you frame it very well. And this is in relation to uh, Dennis and James. Um, you say, you know, you talk about uh, we find these stories uh, used by the press, by the public generally, and by the government to blame people for finding themselves living rough on the street. We look at the growing number of homeless people and say, look, you, had you made better choices like James, then you would not be living on the street. And homeless people often agree. You make the point; they agree because they make the same sort of comparison. Now, this is you talking. You say, "I have made, uh, I have, I have made between Dennis and James. Uh, sorry, the same sort of comparisons I have made between Dennis and James. However, Dennis is not to blame for the number of homeless people on the street. And I think that's actually the sort of that really the penny really dropped for me at that point when I understood what your argument was. You're sort of saying. Um, at a at a policy level, if you've got a number of homeless people, there are levers that could be pulled. There are policy decisions that could be taken. It doesn't remove individual responsibility, but it places it in a society wide context. That's right. Each
1: rough sleeper might think, well, they made some bad decisions, and that's how they ended up in relationship to other people that they know. But they're not responsible for you know even even in aggregate, they're not responsible for it. If, if we're thinking about it at a, at a an aggregate level, we need to think why has there been this change in the number of rough sleepers? Why has there been this change in the number of homeowners over a period of time? And that's going to be something which we can look at at a structural level. Not necessarily – I mean I do say, you know, it's, it's the government stupid. We can blame government. We can also think about government success. I mean government mm. likes to take <laughs> credit when – you know, for successful policies. But we, we should be really be looking at the structures – and the incentives are there for people to behave in one way or another. For example, in, in that example, I, I also mentioned that if we think about someone who's a drug addict and, uh, uh, you know, what we should be thinking about is if someone's a drug addict when they're 23, what's the probability they'll be a drug addict when they're 24? Not comparing someone who's a drug addict 24 with a number of people who drug addicts at 24 because it's harder for drug addicts to come off drugs than for non Someone who's so,
0: not on drugs, to yeah, and we also
1: yeah. know, for example, statistically, that it's easier for people that well, more people come off drugs in their thirties than they do in their twenties, and there's, there's reasons for this. So again, mm. we need to think about the, the the nature of responsibility, individual responsibility, in terms of these these um, aggregate outcomes that we know about through scientific analysis.
0: Yeah. So we, we, one of the things we're saying here is that it's it's all very well if individuals make make bad decisions and this is all people make bad decisions in varying degree throughout their lives make you know less than optimal decisions in the long run of their lives it's just that some people make a whole lot of them and some of those can be really quite you know significant life-changing decisions um, governments can't control that but they do live in the real world and they can see for example social dysfunction happening like significant levels of homelessness people sleeping rough so then the question becomes, what does the government do about it? And I think what you're saying, one of the things you're saying here is that if we have what you've called the, the sort of the cult of personal responsibility, it, it blinds us to the responsibility of government to actually act in some of these circumstances. Because if you just, if you become, if you sort of almost fetishize this idea of personal responsibility, then government has lo- no legitimate function buying into resolving it.
1: One of the things about the Code of Responsibility is it suggests, well, what we want is light government or no government and people get on with their own lives. But when it comes to the issue of homelessness, one of the chapters of the book is is devoted to housing policy and homelessness. You know, is that well the change that we've seen over the last 40 or 50 years has come about, I think, largely because of two ways government's changed its behavior. One is fiscal policy where it's encouraged people to become homeowners by – um, giving tax incentives, but it's also encouraged people to become to, to own second homes and to rent out homes. I mean, fifteen percent of of uh, Australian taxpayers now own a second home that they rent they rent out. They're on tiers because it's it's you know it's a, it's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Government has created that incentive, mm. but that's pushed up house prices. It's making it harder for young people to to buy their first home. Um, we can see that, you know, if we, if we look back again 40 years ago, the number of people under the, th- under 35 that, that was, that were homeowners is much smaller now than it wasn't, was then. Um, so that's sort of one thing is fiscal policy, which is, which has created this. And then also government. Um, I look at three countries. I look at the, in, in detail, the US, the UK and Australia. And Australia's a bit more complicated when it comes to, 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 um, housing policy, because it's, it's at the state level, so there's more variation than, than even in the US. Um, but what's happened is that has got out of the business largely of providing social homes. Um, so that they're doing less house building. They were leaving it up to the private market. And the private market, um, has come in to some extent, but, you know, the pri- private developers want to build houses which they can sell, or if they're going to be, be, be created for rent, it's for higher uh, rent. Uh, than sort of low rent for social housing. So governments and these two sort of, in one hand tax policy has, has created a greater home ownership but that's pushed up house prices making it harder for younger people and poorer people to own their own homes and the second that they've Got out of the business of, of creating social housing, which again has, has pushed up rents uh, 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 and created a greater number of what I call rough sleepers or homeless people. Yeah, so it's know. created
0: more rough sleepers, as yep. you say, and it's also yep. created a class of people who are essentially perennial renters because, right. because as right. you say, that first part of it, the, the, the entry price to the housing market in terms of ownership is beyond them. Yep, and so right. they're sort of locked in that rent cycle, you know, permanently losing a lot of money in rent or paying a lot anyway uh, and not able to save for a deposit and, you know, get into that home ownership. Have we learned anything through this COVID crisis about homelessness? Because it suddenly became, you know, this is a really interesting dimension of this, it suddenly became in all of our interests not to have people rough on the street. I mean, you take Melbourne, for example, you've got a nighttime curfew. If it's illegal to be on the street after 8 p.m., then obviously it's illegal to street on the, sleep on the street as well, um, to sleep rough. Um, in COVID, therefore, it became very in this COVID time became very much in the in the kind of broader social interest that this perennial, endemic, intractable problem of homelessness be dealt with, and some emergency yes. decisions were taken.
1: Yeah, I mean, that well, it, it has brought it home to us a little bit about. Uh, how rough sleeping is not in anyone's interest. I mean... Well, that's always been there. I mean, people don't like sort of rough sleepers. No one really likes someone sleeping roughly in the doorway of, say, their business or something. Sure, but out of sight, out the of mind. That, exactly. So, but well, that, that has itself created a problem because businesses try to discourage people from sleeping in the doorways. Um, another aspect of rough sleeping is how we have fewer public facilities now. If, you know, yeah. just uh, public toilets, If you know, if you're, mm. if you're a rough sleeper, you've got to – do your toilet somewhere? You've got want to wash. Again, if you're a rough sleeper, how do you get out of it? Well, you get a job, so you get some money. But if you can't tidy yourself up, if you can't, you know, wash your clothes, you can't wash yourself. How do you get a job? You can't so, fill out an
0: application form if it has to be digital, <laughs> most things do have to be digital these days. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean,
1: so that's other things that government can do, and I do talk about the, um, the the Finnish experience with rough 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 sleepers, where they, you know, they had a, a, a process called Parvo. Um Pavo actually stands for is sort of finished for Paul. And it's actually a um uh I think I think it's a sort of saying there that um uh, Paul's done his job so Paul can go now is kind of and so the idea is what they wanted to do is to get rid of homelessness. So they had something let's do our job and it will go and then we can take it away. Mm. And the whole idea of Pavo was that, well, you know, one of the problems of rough sleeping is actually drug addiction, drug addicted and on, on the streets and certain policies in the UK, for example, you've got to get off drugs before you can be, be housed, have a right to housing. And they say, that's the wrong way around, actually. Mm. It's very hard to come off drugs when you're in the streets. So let's house people and then help them. And it's been a, it's been a highly successful process. It might show, actually, that maybe there will always be some rough sleepers. I mean, there's, you know, there might be a kind of a, uh, a level at which government cannot
0: reduce uh, rough sleeping to zero, but, you know... A bit like unemployment. Say, there will always be some people who aren't in jobs. You can
1: think about there might be a natural rate of um, natural rate of unemployment.
0: So a what, what becomes an issue then is, but, is, is, is if there are but, people who are sort of perennially uh, unhoused. Um,
1: but, but, but that's the stage at which you might say, well, this is a lifestyle choice if we've done... You know, if we have mm-hmm. really got it down to such a low level. How do we judge what the low level is? Well, we can only do it comparatively. Again, one of the... Points that I try to make in the book is that actually a lot of things that we need to do, we can, we, we need to look at comparatively so we can look at, you know, what's best practice in one country, what's best practice in another, what's, what's, what was the level in the past, what's the level today, you know, can we do better? Um, because you can never really theoretically work out what, you know, a natural rate of rough sleeping would be, but I would think it would be quite small. Not many people want to, not many people want to live rough in the street.
0: No, you wouldn't have thought so. It's, apart from anything else, it's actually extremely dangerous. Uh, just about everyone who has lived rough, has slept rough, uh, has a story to tell about, yep. about being yep. you know, done over. But we
1: also must recognize that rough sleeping is only one en- end of homelessness. I mean, there's an awful lot of people that have no permanent accommodation. They yep. might be s- sleeping with friends. They might be moving around a lot. They have no permanent. So homelessness is a, is a much broader issue than just rough sleeping. That's just the sort of most obvious aspect of it.
0: And do governments going back to sort of hammer the point, I suppose. But do governments um, have something of a leave pass in not, you know, taking the hard decisions in relation to this—the things that actually cost and and, and take uh, take imagination? Critical do they, do they have a-
1: talk a lot about path dependency? And one of the issues now. For government is that it's created these incentives for people to own their own homes and to to rent. Uh, it's going to be very unpopular policies to start shifting fiscal policy away from that subsidy. Uh, I mean, again, if you think about it in terms of tax policy, I think in the book I say in the U.S. figures for that: for every dollar that's spent on uh, trying to to house social housing, you could say six dollars are given to uh, people who own their own homes in terms of fiscal mm. incentives. So their whole policy is actually to you know, to, to subsidise the middle class and the rich in a sense. Um, and it's very difficult to move away from that from government because those are the people that, that are voting.
0: Precisely. I mean uh, that's the experience in Australia in, in a yeah. lot of democracies. You yeah. can give people things and get votes. Uh, taking them away again is a whole yeah. other proposition. So my
1: book is I do, I do consider this to be a book of – political philosophy. A lot of my political philosophy friends will find this strange because it's about different policies. Um, but, you know, I can, as a political scientist, I can kind of explain why government does this. If I was a political scientist writing this book, I'd probably call it, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a pressure group. Uh, uh, Stupid or Pressure Group's Stupid or something. It's Special Interest Stupid would be the name of the book. But What I'm trying to say is that this is a book of sort of theory because I'm saying, well, there's a responsibility for government. However, whatever the causal process is, it's it's, this government's
0: responsibility for these things and, and, and they need to take it. So just to stick with that for a minute, and we'll take a break in a sec, but just to stick with that just so that, you know, everyone listening understands that, That delineation you're making. If it was a uh, a book of political science, it would be about uh, sort of empirical data. It would be about. It would be
1: about why does government do this? How does this come about? What are the pressures upon upon governments? How does our democratic system work to lead us into policies which lead to these poor outcomes? This is a book about. Well, we have this cult of responsibility. Political philosophers write about it a lot. Uh, comment political commentators write it about it a lot government talks about it it's blaming people for the sorts of uh, outcomes of government's own policy so this is about look this is actually government responsibility. Government's going say you know special interest pushes in this direction Still, they still bear responsibility for it even if that's true
0: Yeah and there are plenty of special interests uh, at, at the top end that are that are very well cashed up and able to influence government all the time, as we know. We see them in Parliament House all the time. Let's take a quick break there and come back and continue the discussion. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, they supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
1: Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods, or find us at policyforum.net slash
0: podcasts. Welcome back. Now, Keith, you've Gone, you've picked up a number of kind of key policy heads here and we've already talked at some length about one of them being homelessness but you've also looked at uh, policy in relation to guns, obesity, which we've touched on a bit, gambling as well or, or gambling uh, addiction, you know, problem gambling and, and, and drug use and that, that would be drug addiction as well or dependency right. as well. So what what's the kind of logic of those policy heads that you've looked at?
1: Yeah, I mean uh, the, the
0: – The book is structured in in,
1: in basically the order that you suggested. I began with uh, gun policy because, I mean, obviously the U.S. is an outlier here, uh, very lax gun regulations in comparison to other uh, developed nations. It also has far greater gun crime, suicide from guns, um, and accidents from guns. So, and I think most people outside of the U.S. do find that gun law uh, regulations in, in the U.S. to be kind of Crazy. <laughs> Mystifying. Um, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's quite an easy one to start with because you can show quite straightforwardly, you know, with descriptive statistics. The book is doesn't have much in, by way of statistics in it, actually. Um but it can show quite simply that um, you know, these lax regulations leads leads to all of these, you know, the greater uh, uh, um, gun crime in all sorts of ways, suicide and so on. So it does sort of make the point that regulations matter mm-hmm. um, quite straightforwardly. Um, and then – but I also look at, you know, um, why the US has that. I mean we can look at the effects of special interest NRA but actually, you know, guns are quite popular amongst the American people generally speaking. But the argument there is, look, it's often framed by the NRA and other organizations that, you know, you want to ban our guns, and that's actually not the case. We can look at this there's, there's quite high gun ownership in some other countries as well, but the regulations governing... You know, how you get guns, and I can, and I show a little bit about how those regulations affect, for example, the suicide rate. So if you um, if you make it more difficult for, if, if, if you have a process whereby when you try to buy a gun, um, it takes a little while, you have to apply, so you don't really get the gun for a couple of weeks. It's actually, an effect on 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 the suicide rate of males, for example. Yeah, yeah.
0: Right? Just the sort of time baffle. As, Just the time yeah.
1: baffle that has that yeah. effect. If you have uh, regulations governing whether or not you've had any psychotic episodes, or or you've got a criminal record or aspects of domestic abuse, mm-hmm. straight away you find that this has all sorts of effects upon on, upon uh, deaths from guns and, and injuries from guns and so on. So these regulations do have an effect. So that's kind of what the first chapter I look at. And then I look at um, obesity, um, I think that's the next chapter. Um, uh, because again, I think this is a fairly straightforward uh, policy in the sense that we pretty well know in my view and I give some evidence that the obesity crisis which has grown after the last 40 years has come about because of the additives we get in manufactured and processed foods. Processed foods. So the, um, the added salts and trans fats and sugars particularly even in, you know, and highly carbonated, uh, highly sugared drinks and mm-hmm. uh, 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 sweetened beverages has this, have this effect. Um, and we can pretty well see this manufactured food which, which is, has had this effect. So again, I can say, look, government could do something about it could regulate this and it's starting to do so but um, it, it could do more. So again, I'm trying to show that, that the obesity crisis has grown. And that's also quite good in terms of the responsibility because, um, you know, there is a – body shape is a, is a controversial issue. People say, well, look, it's, it's a lifestyle choice. there's issues is about fat shaming and, and so mm. on, uh, which is sort of an awful thing. But I argue, look, one of the ways in which government tries to deal with obesity is to say eat healthily. You know, it sort mm. of adds. It puts the responsibility on people. Sort of adds to fat shaming. when I said, we might say, look, if it just controlled the sort of foods that, that we can buy, so that, so that they're healthier. And again, you know, it's the it's the processed foods and and the the uh, highly manufactured foods which are the cheapest food that's available. Food prices have come down enormously in the last forty years, but fresh fruit and vegetables have gone up in price.
0: Really it's really things. interesting this isn't it because um I I where I live in in um, Griffith in the ACT you know there's a there's a McDonald's nearby mm. and I have quite regularly on social media uh taken photos of the rubbish that is left around an otherwise pristine suburb yep. by the patrons of this outlet uh and it's all got advertising on it by the way I suspect it's actually meant to continue advertising after it's been thrown in the gutter you know yep. just sort of making the point um but I have had some people come back to me and make that very good point that you just made, that this is food that is actually affordable uh, for a lot of people. I mean, I guess some people are responding to what they might have seen as a certain snootiness in my attitude mm. toward this fast food outlet, and it's true I don't go there. Um, but we do have to accept that, yes, that is uh, a, a source of protein and, you know, and, and I guess um, enjoyment for, for a lot of people to get, you know, burgers and chips and so forth at those places and, and you know, supersized soft well, drinks and so forth. I mean, you know, it's more affordable, as you say, than fruit and have veg. To be
1: careful. Yeah, as, <clears throat> absolutely. Although we, we might say, it's quite difficult to say, well, maybe food is too cheap now. But um, if you actually look at the amount of time, in how much we spend on, on food now relative to what we spend on other things, it's a tiny fraction of what it's been. In our evolutionary history, so if you look at how much time people, if you go to work in order to earn money to to, to mm. spend on food, or how much they used to when they were, you know, it's it's a tiny fraction. It's now about. Sort of, I, I, I don't quote this in the book, but the figures I think are something like fifteen percent of our time now is spent, whereas it used to be eighty mm. percent. Even sixty seventy years ago, it would have been sixty percent of our time just to. So you could actually argue that food, in some ways, in terms of uh, the amount of time we spend. Um, um, working in order to get food, food is very very cheap now. So that's one reason which might cause us to eat more, <laughs> hmm. which is not good for us. So, but okay, you might say, look, come on, you can't say that. What it's, it's, you're know, you suggesting, poor people shouldn't be eating at all. Well, no, we could think if if you if there were regulations which would make McDonald's produce healthier burgers, right. Then their patrons would be eating healthier burgers. Would those burgers be more expensive? Not necessarily, because if the regulations are in place, McDonald's would have to respond to those regulations, and one of the things and it so, would, do, its so yeah. would its competitors. So would its competitors, which would drive down the price. I'm not. I, I'm not saying that it would have no effect on price. It might do, but you can't just assume mm. that the prices would shoot up, right? Because they might produce slightly smaller portions. They might have other ways in which they can. The, the, they can store their products and, and so on. So well, one
0: way would be to use price, though, wouldn't. I mean, that's the, that, that's one of the arguments here would be that, that the regulation would be to send a price signal by saying, if you want to, yeah. uh, like, like a sugar tax, for example, in relation to, to soft drinks. Um, sure. If you
1: have a sugar tax, it will put up the price of, of sugar drinks. But what the manufacturers will do if they want to sell more is, is to reduce the sugar content or if they want to. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so I think, you know, you can't just assume that even if you put, Tax on food necessarily, the price of food will go up by the amount of that by the amount of tax. Because the reason that you'd be putting the tax on it will be to try to have those additives reduced in the products which are sold.
0: And so, you think that's actually possible here that the that, that governments could be looking at uh, you know sort of these kinds of tax incentives or ta- price incentives, I should say, by using taxes to. Um,
1: there are governments around the world which have now ban certain trans fats mm. uh, and have started putting in sugar taxes. Um, there is a bit of a – more of a difficulty with sugar tax than, than banning things like trans fats because uh, even, you know, even if you reduce the amount of tax per sugar drink, you're not necessarily you know, – people might just drink more. <laughs> have any more drinks, be, you know, it wouldn't necessarily affect someone's sugar intake be- because the price of certain, because the amount of sugar in particular drinks would go down. But that will be, but well, that will be one sort of policy uh, response. The book doesn't go into detail on precisely what government should do. And, you know, and I would argue that you can't necessarily know in advance precisely what you should do, but you can try certain sorts of policies, certain suites of policies, some t- types of policies, um, to, to try and produce Uh, healthier food and and deal with the obesity crisis. Don't just blame people for eating too much.
0: Yeah. Now what about gambling? Now that's an area that's uh, uh, – gambling addiction in particular, it's an area of great challenge to the community – uh, it's also incredibly pervasive now. I mean, wherever you go, whatever sporting event you look at now has gambling advertising. Gambling and, it.
1: and, and, and then drugs are, are slightly different cases for me because, um, I'm saying that government should regulate more essentially in these, in, 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 in with regard to obesity and with regard to to guns. Um, but gambling is, is something they used to regulate more and have done so less. And I generally support that. Um, you know, people like to flutter and have a bit of a gamble. There's nothing particularly wrong with that. But there's an issue with problem gambling and, and, and people have become addicted. Um, and government has recognized this and, and does work with the gambling industry to help problem gamblers. But the argument there is that I think that, um, Government is again could actually look at the, should relook at the nature in which they regulate and I think one of the problems with the gambling industry is actually research. Yeah. I mean a lot of Research into gambling is either funded by the gambling industry or funded by government, and government makes a lot of money from gambling. It's a good mess. Nice, <laughs> what are the odds? Yeah, it may, you know because of gambling tax, and it's it's a nice tax because it's relatively hidden, and <laughs> um, and also political parties do you know pokies and so on in, in, in
0: Australia. Well, it's a bit like on. tobacco tax. I yeah. mean, you don't want everyone to stop smoking, or there's no. going to be like eighteen billion dollars missing yeah. out of the budget.
1: But the problem with the, with with a lot of the, in my view, a lot of the research that looks at how we help problem problem gamblers. And, and what are the nature of problem gamblers, and who are they? Where do they come from? So, problem gamblers often have other problems, other addictions, and mm-hmm. so on. What is less looked at is why people become problem gamblers. And in fact, the gambling industry has really created uh, gambling machines which get people hooked. Yeah. Um, so it's a similar issue to actually to the to the food manufacturers. I mean, I say you know, food manufacturing is you know, we could say some of ultra processed food is almost designed to make us fat. It wasn't. That's a byproduct. I don't blame the manufacturers for doing that because they're trying to sell things and, the, and what they're doing is to appeal to our evolutionally developed tastes. What the uh, gambling industry has done has created gambling machines which will maximize our revenue. So, um, particularly with uh, electronic gambling machines, EGMs, pokers as often called in Australia, um, you know, they are designed to maximize how much money we put in. So they've learned that. You know, there's an optimal uh, payback when you put your money in, when do you get your result? Three to five seconds. If it's shorter than that, you don't get the pleasure. If it's longer than that, they don't maximize how much money they get. One of the difficulties is it also uh, makes it harder to overcome a gambling addiction. If you just had a if the payoff being at say fifteen seconds, it's easy for someone to walk away. They've also developed a system where now you can run, you know, several lines in the same machine, so addicted gamblers might be running fifteen lines. Um, which means actually every time you put your money in, you're, win- you're winning. But that actually has an effect upon the brain, which means that you lose almost your cognitive ability to know, almost know what you're doing, mm. right, So mm. to, to, to think about it. Again, it makes it much harder to pull away from it. These are the sorts of things that government might look at. And the sound of machines as well. They've also put in the sound, yeah, which the also, lights, the lights yeah. and everything. Yeah. So, you know, government could look at making the machine silent or something. That would have a bigger Maybe
0: have some windows so they can actually see that it's gone, it's turned into at nightfall, or it's suddenly the next day, or whatever it might—something
1: be. like that. Yeah, but my point is, is that this is not really. It, there is some research on it, um, but it's not. It's under researched, and this is the way in which government should be looking at, at regulation gambling, because that would actually, rather than helping problem gamblers, they should be trying to stop people becoming problem gamblers in the first place.
0: So, all the people that um, you know, you can hear the the criticism of this. They're they be talking again, as I said at the start, about you know the nanny state and you know why should the government have any control over what I eat or how I spend my money and, and these sorts of things. And, and all of this fits into a frame of reference, a current of opinion, that's been around now for quite a long time. So let's let's go back to the period immediately after the Second World War when countries like Australia, Britain, the US are in the rebuilding phase. Governments are actually, particularly in the UK and um, and, and, and Australia... But also to, to a significant extent in the US, governments are very involved in, in um, in rebuilding in the economy. They, I mean, if you think about Australia, they're involved in absolutely everything. You know, they're involved in mm. telecommunications, airlines, you know, gas, energy, uh, mm. public transport, education, health. I mean, you can just go through everything the government mm. was doing as a direct providing agency. What we've had since then over time is a sort of a, 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 you know, that kind of neoliberal revolution where we've seen this cult, as you describe it, of personal responsibility take over and government withdraw from a number of these areas. Okay. So
1: why was the, why did the welfare state develop particularly after the, after the war? One reason was that it was clear that, um, you know, the war affected people across all classes, you know, Equally, to some extent, lots of people lost their homes, no matter how poor or rich you were, lots of homeless people, mm. uh, a lot of sis- social dislocation. Um, you know whether or not destruction of factories and so on, particularly in Europe, uh, where, yeah. where the war was greatest. So there's a little thing that we're all in this together. So there was a you know, sort of collective effort. Again, in Australia, a lot of you know, soldiers coming back um, uh, needed to be reintegrated back into 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 um, into, into industry. Encouragement of, of immigration, so uh, uh, to, to bring in workers and families, and so providing homes and, and housing for, for such people and and and, and welfare services and so on, education, it was seen that education is important. So a lot of – so I think there's a sense in which there's much more of a collective community then and people could see that actually where people end up involves a lot of luck. Now, um you know, I, I think I've got some other works not in this book but actually I think a lot of life is still based – essentially on luck, i mean if you hear mm. successful people it's always you know how hard they worked yeah yeah well l- lots of people work hard that's <laughs> in true actual yeah. fact you know there's a lot of luck involved in where we all end up you can perhaps think about your own you know your own career you might think it's you know the decision that you made which happened to be, be the right one or the wrong one or you know certain people that helped you and so on so there's a lot of luck in, in involved in our, in our lives. so i think this was much more obvious to people then than now so that um People didn't feel that what people gained was necessarily just their responsibility. So you know, that and that, group. And, and
0: that that process has happened. Though we've sort of seen this, you know, this kind of hollowing out almost, where where governments have stepped back. They said we've got no business being in telecommunications, or we've got no business in energy or whatever. And so the, you know, that whole privatization thing happens, yeah. and this and this narrative that goes with it, which is that. You know well, uh, we're mutual again, obligation yeah. personal responsibility so, i
1: mean again I think a lot of a lot, lot of the sort of what we might think what we used to be think of as public utilities i mean what happened was that you know the, 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 you know it was market failure originally it was very difficult to make money uh, from a lot of these uh sort of public goods um, yeah you know initially without government putting in the infrastructure so it puts in the infrastructure and once that's there and technical change as well uh as m- m- means that you can now have a market for these things now you know i i do think that um you know my uh, it's not my view that i think we should sort of nationalize everything that's been privatized i think that you know the markets do Do work well if they're regulated. I mean, that's one of the arguments of the
0: book. That's a really key point, isn't it? I mean, markets can work well, but they do need to operate in a context.
1: If you, if trouble is, people talk about free markets, but you know, free markets often become. Less marketized. I mean, you know, there's a move towards monopoly in many, many different fields. Mm. So that's not, that's not a competitive market. If you've got monopolies or oligopolies, it, 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 you know, governments used to actually be much stricter on, you know, monopoly used to be defined in, in British legislation as anyone that controls more than about 20% of. Of, of a market is a monopoly. So yeah, and the US was economic. big
0: on trust busting at one exactly. stage, but now but we have these all. sort of meta corporations, don't we?
1: That's right. So, it's all, so that's all changed. So again, I would argue that if you want, if you think markets are good, and I do, you think competition's good, and I do, it needs to be regulated to keep it competitive.
0: So has, if we're looking at this in terms of those big trends, has that kind of period of small government uh, markets, you know, laissez-faire capitalism, has it kind of topped out now, do you think? I mean, uh, is the populism uh, we're seeing at the moment yep. is is kind of anti-market in some ways.
1: It is, I think the the danger is that it becomes too anti-market, actually. But I think um, I I would like to think so. I would like to think that people could see that. You know, uh, trying to create the kind of markets that we want and trying to see a more proper role for government. I do think, you know, the idea of a small government is, is a misnomer. I, You know, actually, what tends to happen is that when you privatize, what government needs to do is then to create lots of regulations to actually oversee the privatized interests that it's created. So in some sense, you've got, you know, if you think about government as being a set of laws, you've actually got bigger government because you've got more complex laws to mm. govern the privatized interests that it's that it's created. So, you know, I, I think, you know, I don't like the idea. You know, I, I want someone to, to, to prove to me that government is smaller now than it was 20 years ago or 30 years ago because I don't think it is actually. <laughs> <laughs> but also what it has done, but one of the good reasons why government likes to privatize is that it actually allows it to blame shift because now it can say, well, you know, Yes, the ind- there's a problem with the industry. We'll, we'll, we'll pass a few laws and see if we can do something or, or bring in some sort of regulations to try and change it. So they get, they're getting the, – they're sort of producing things that, uh, 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 that from one remove from that notion of responsibility. So it's another aspect actually of government – Abrogating its own responsibilities
0: yeah that 's really interesting and hence the title how governments blame citizens for for, for, for policies or policy failures yeah yes it's uh, it 's really uh, fascinating and we see that with um, even with some of these large government owned companies, if I can use that term, and one of them has been in the news quite a lot in the last few days that that being australia post yeah. and the uh, provision of cartier watches to to people and, you know, certain senior executives, but essentially government, you know, uh, the, the ethos was or the argument was that, you know, this corporation had to behave like a private corporation and then it did. <laughs> and then we saw what happened. But That's we also right. see that with the NBN. Um, it, it's been interesting actually to watch. In some areas there's been a tendency to have a big market player in a given sector that is still owned by, by the government um, and which therefore provides a certain... Competitive regulatory function. Um, That's right. It's been the case in health insurance with Medibank uh, yep. in, in Australia, for example. And there have been a few other examples of that in mm. the past. You know, there was TAA, the sort of forerunner to Qantas, the domestic airline service running in parallel with Ansett, but TAA was government owned. And of course, we've got the APC, really. Uh, you
1: know. Yeah, I mean, I think that again, I think you're there might be a role for i mean i mean i think that, that there is a role for um maybe within the media for for uh some subsidized or, or government owned um Media groups, perhaps less so when it comes to to airlines or again I think yeah. one needs to look at to look at differences in different kinds of ways yeah i there can't imagine
0: a, that we're going back to a i don't think we'll see an australian no. government owned airline in the future so,
1: but there is a, an issue you know you talk about you know the Cartier Washington there is a sense in which the media does have a closer watch upon uh, government agencies than it does upon the private sector hmm. so we often think about you know, there's a sort of, again, I think a bit of a myth about how inefficient bureaucracies are. One of the reasons that we often do in political scientists, do we look at how the way public servants um, uh, operate and mistakes made in government? But of course, mistakes are made in. Private sector all the time, and you'll find many private, large private sector companies are just as sort of bureaucratic and, and inefficient as, as government. So, there's a, there's a, again, I think there's a, it's a, something of an issue that we tend to, to, to study government and look at problems in government more than we do in the private sector.
0: Mm, which is also a way of, uh, or a function of dominant narratives, I suppose, yep. uh, which we've been talking about. Keith Dowding, thanks so much for this discussion. I really enjoyed it, and I, I'm sure our listeners have have as well. That's distinguished Professor Keith Dowding. Um and thanks for challenging those orthodoxies, which I think, you know, do need to be challenged. Uh, that's what orthodoxies are, I guess, and um that's why they need to be challenged from time to time. I'm Mark Kinney, and this has been Democracy Sausage Extra. Thanks for joining us as always. Uh, thanks also to the Crawford School of Public Policy and my friend and producer Martin Pierce, who's sitting in here with us. Um, And uh, we'll talk again next week. Just before I go, I'll just tell you the name of that book again. It's called It's the Government Stupid, How Governments Blame Citizens for Their Own Policies by Keith Dowding and it's put out by Bristol University Press. So have a look at that if you get a chance. Thanks, Keith. Thank you very much, Mark. And we'll talk to you again next week.